Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin, sitting in for a vacationing Simon Morris. This week on At The Movies, an overworked executive rediscovers his childhood friends and his own family in Christopher Robin. You can't just keep saying hello to people. People can't see you moving and talking. But why? Because, because you're different. And people don't like things that are different. So I shouldn't be me. No, no, you, you, no, you should always be yourself. No, this is very confusing. An underworked secret agent gets a shot at saving Britain's shrinking empire and Johnny English strikes again. Dobrovecia, Ms. Bulatova. Seriously? This could not be happening. Oh, but it is. In Searching, a teenage daughter goes missing and her widowed father harnesses all the power of modern technology to try and find her. Leave me a message or text me back. Hi, sweetheart. Um, just checking in because it looks like you already left for school this morning. And finally, in modern-day Tokyo, a four-year-old boy has his world shaken up by the arrival of a baby sister in the delightful animated film Midai. I've always been careful not to try and fit the coincidence of film release dates into some kind of overarching theory of anything. It might make for some interesting theorising, but usually the stretch doesn't justify the means. But this week, we actually do have something linking three of our four films, Parents and Children. Later on, we'll talk about Searching, a tight little thriller in which a father tries to find his missing daughter, all from behind his laptop keyboard. Then there's the delightful Mirai, about a toddler usurped by his newborn sister, all told from the selfish little fellow's point of view. And we start with Christopher Robin, where the story boffins at Disney wonder what would happen if the adult Christopher was ever to meet up again with his adorable, beloved, stuffed animal friends. Disney's been doing a lot of this sort of thing lately, remaking or reimagining some of their older and much-loved properties in often hugely expensive, special-effects-heavy live-action versions. The cynic in me thought that this was just a way for the House of Mouse to restart the 95-year copyright term for all their ageing Golden Age films. After all, the first Mickey Mouse cartoon, Steamboat Willie, becomes public property in 2024. But it's more than this. Those early animated films aren't perennial cash cows. Fashions change, and kids these days won't sit still long enough for the 1950s Cinderella to work its considerable charms. They need more, so Disney made it again, and to their credit, spent a shedload of cash on it too. Kate Blanchett and Kenneth Branagh, real A-listers. And they've kept going, 
ultra-realistic talking animals in the Jungle Book, Emma Watson as Belle in Beauty and the Beast. Next year, they'll be joined by live-action versions of Mulan, directed by Kiwi Nikki Caro, Aladdin, Dumbo and The Lady and the Tramp. It's a stampede. And I want to be a grumpy old man about it, I really do, except the films themselves won't let me. Especially this one, Christopher Robin. You can't just keep saying hello to people. People can't see you moving and talking. But why? Because, because you're different. And people don't like things that are different. So I shouldn't be me. No, no, you, 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 know, you should always be yourself. No, this is very confusing. It may be the hunger. You've just eaten. Oh, that's right. Maybe I didn't eat enough. Look, never mind about that. For now, just try and be a, a less, a less exuberant you. Exuberant. Flop. Sag. Goolump. The ever boyish Ewan McGregor plays the adult Christopher, or Mr. Robin as they call him at the failing suitcase company where he now works. Once he'd grown too old for stuffed toy friends and aimless and endless summer days of adventures, he was packed off to boarding school where, among other hardships, he missed the death of his father. Life, it seemed, was considerably more serious than his idyllic childhood had led him to believe, and that was even before World War II came along. As we meet the adult Christopher, he's a stranger to his wife and child, and obsessed with serving his company, even though the company, in the shape of the delightfully unctuous Mark Gatiss from the League of Gentlemen, is offering very little in return. While Christopher is being swallowed up by soulless corporate life, his former companions are also feeling a bit lost. In the hundred-acre wood, a fog has descended, and poor old Winnie the Pooh, voiced with pleasing familiarity by the current voice of the animated version, Jim Cummings, is lost and alone, friendless and honeyless. As a last resort, he tries to go through the door in the tree roots from where Christopher used to emerge. Maybe he can help. Sure enough, Pooh finds himself in one of those classic English square parks, sitting on a bench behind a very familiar voice. What to do, what to do, what to do. What to do indeed. Pooh? Christopher Robin. No, 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 no. no. This can't be happening. Stress. It's not stress. It's poo. Poo. What follows are some amusing shenanigans back at the residence, where a stern Christopher tries to be very grown up around a bear with very little brain. Desperate to get on with his important work of the weekend, making cuts in expenditure at the luggage company without laying off too many workers, because he is, of course, a benign middle manager. Christopher agrees to help Pooh return to Hundred Acre Wood, if only to get him out of his now honey-filled hair. This plan is, of course, easily derailed by the naive charms of the stuffed teddy bear with no pants, and Christopher is soon back in the wood, fighting off heffalumps and rescuing piglets. Eventually the roles are reversed, and it's the job of Pooh, Piglet, Tigger and Eeyore, with help from Madeline, Christopher's daughter, to rescue him from the clutches of 20th century commerce. Pooh, do you think you might be able to amuse yourself for a while? I've got some rather pressing work to do. House. Clouds. 
house, tree, bush, a man, dog. Who? What are you doing? Oh, I'm playing a game. It's called Say What You See. Well, could you say what you see a little more quietly? Christopher Robin, the film, is a bit of an odd fish. It's the most grown-up G-rated film I think I've ever seen. All of its power, and it has some, comes from moments that won't land at all on anyone under 40. Some of that is nostalgia for the original characters, and it must be said that it's mainly the Disney version of these characters that we are being nostalgic for. There were a few people my age in the audience that almost cheered when Tigger started singing that song about how wonderful he is. That's not to say that the film isn't without its attractions to a younger target audience. It's just that it only flirts with greatness when it's a film about a middle-aged man having to learn what's important about life all over again. Or maybe that's the bit that got through my defences. My final thoughts are that the 65mm Kodak cinematography by Matthias Koenigswieser proves that film is not yet dead, at least as a capture technology. It looks beautifully cinematic, even when projected digitally. And fine though Brad Garrett is as Eeyore, I would have preferred Jonathan Banks, you know, the one who plays the lugubrious Mike Ehrmantraut in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Just my luck. A heffalump. Leering at his lunch. I'm not a heifer, Does it matter anyway? Headed for the waterfall. I'll be gone soon. Oh, no, not the waterfall. Swim! Not that anyone will notice. Swim, swim, swim! Just have to go with the flow. flow. Don't worry. I'm not. Can't change the inevitable. Mustn't give up, Eeyore. I'll save you. We'll see. Oh, yes, of course, I've grown up, haven't I? <laughs> As I mentioned before, Christopher Robin is rated G and is playing in cinemas all over New Zealand now. One thing there's, sir, the experience can be very disorientating. It's completely immersive and some people lose all track of their actual surroundings. <laughs> I think we can pretty much guarantee that's not going to happen. I'll just need you to sign the health and safety releases. Yeah. Would you excuse me while I find an iPad? Oh, go with him, though. If we don't chivvy him along, we'll be here all day. <sighs> Comedian Rowan Atkinson has been spending most of his screen time lately as a highly regarded Inspector Maygrave for British television. A straight and still role, rather than the mugging and gurning that made him famous. But he's been, as comedians so often are when they go straight, rather good. At 62, you'd think that Atkinson has nothing left to prove as a comedian, having brought indelible characters like Blackadder and Mr Bean to life so effectively, and that the world of drama should be the next mountain to climb. But instead, he's decided to risk that great reputation by going back to the Johnny English well with, well, a pretty lethargic performance in a very tired franchise. 
I can't call it a disappointment because I never thought Johnny English was much of a character to begin with, but I am surprised that in times of such turmoil in British public life that the story would fail to connect itself in any meaningful way with any of it. Perhaps the main purpose of Johnny English Strikes Again is to provide funding for another entry in Mr Atkinson's sports car collection. In fact, the vintage Aston Martin that English drives in the film was bought by the actor specifically for the film, so maybe it is just that simple. Right, transport. So, take any hybrid you want. I'll take this one. Oh, don't be ridiculous, English. This car's a relic. Drinks petrol, leaks oil, has no passive, let alone active safety features. Do you know what else it doesn't have, sir? Satellite navigation or a single computer chip. Making it completely invisible to a digital enemy. As our film begins, every single one of MI7's agents around the world have been compromised. Prime Minister Emma Thompson, the only performer here who seems to be really trying, but with nothing much except our familiarity with Theresa May to work with, has to bring the old guard out of retirement. And that includes Mr English, who is teaching basic spy skills to 11-year-olds at a prep school in the country. Pressed back into service, he wisely, perhaps too wisely for a character supposed to be so inept, calls for backup in the form of eager boffin Boff, played by Ben Miller, and the aforementioned Aston Martin, a rather ugly-to-my-eyes 1980s V8, which is similar to the car Timothy Dalton drove in The Living Daylights. It was ugly then, too. But it's not computerised, which means it can't be hacked by the cyber-villain who is attempting to take over the world. In a staggering coincidence, at the same time as cyber-attacks are crippling Britain's infrastructure... Prime Minister Thompson receives some overtures from a young dot-com tycoon played by Jake Lacey. He offers to fix all their problems as long as she signs over all Britain's data to his version of the Googleplex. And nobody suspects that he might be involved. It's a rare Johnny English film when he appears to be the smartest person in it. A quick trip to the south of France is required to investigate a mysterious superyacht, the Dot Calm, which was in the vicinity of the IP address that started all the hacking. But who could own it? Gracious, what a puzzle. English and Boff go undercover in a posh restaurant, which they then manage to set fire to, then sneak aboard the Dot Calm with some magnetic boots that provide one of the few opportunities to actually laugh out loud. On board the dot calm is a beautiful and enigmatic Russian named Ophelia, played as a weak casting in-joke by Olga Kurilenko from Quantum of Solace. She seems not to be in on the joke, but then who among us really is in this film? Dobrovetsia, Ms. Bulatova. Seriously? This could not be happening. Oh, but it is. Drop the gun. Take your hands in the air. And you. There's no time for this, Johnny. Oh, it isn't possible. You cannot be working with this English idiot. Save the pillow talk for your prison cell, Volta. Are you inside, sir? Yes, yes, Buff, you can power down. Everything's under control. Oh! <laughs> 
Johnny English Strikes Again is directed by David Carr, who won a BAFTA for the sketch comedy show That Mitchell and Webb Look. But this is his first feature, and he needs to do better than recreate tired old British TV sketch comedy blocking. But the real culprit here is how old-fashioned it all seems. There's so much going on in the world that is worthy of spoofing. I mean, Britain alone is worthy of a whole chapter in the 2018 Planet Earth joke book. But this film seems blissfully unaware of it all, going through the motions as if repeating the same old tired clichés is enough. A bit like Britain itself, then. Now then, what have we here? Sorry, sir. Never mind, Bagley. Your concealment and camouflage work is definitely improving. Thank you, sir. You too, Ibadullah. Excellent. That is a first-class man-trap. Six house points. Yes! Johnny English Strikes Again is rated PG for violence and coarse language, and it shouldn't be too hard to track down. It isn't as if it's gone undercover or anything like that. Leave me a message or text me back. Hi, sweetheart. Um, just checking in because it looks like you already left for school this morning. Hey, Margot, Dad again. Why did you leave your laptop at home? I haven't been able to reach Margot. Wait, you can't find Margot? Study group only went till 9. She said it was going all night. No, she definitely left at 9. I hadn't realised this while watching Searching the other day, but there's a new film genre around called Screen Life, and this is just the first of quite a few. The idea is that your story is told through the protagonist's relationship to their screens, text messages, online chats, Skype and FaceTime. Whatever we see on the big screen is supposedly generated by one of our many modern devices. It's an interesting conceit, and one that works quite well here. Producer Timur Bekmambatov, who is pushing the idea hardest, makes solidly entertaining traditional films when he's working on his own but he enlists hot young directors to make these newfangled things fly. Searching is directed by 27-year-old Anish Shaganti, and he keeps the tension tightly wound here, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The film opens with a very clever montage, showing time passing through the constant updates and improvements to our PC interfaces. In this sequence, we follow the family of David Kim, played by John Cho, as he and his wife get pregnant, have a baby, the baby grows into a talented little girl, and then mum dies of cancer, while at the same time they go from Windows XP to Vista to Mac. Father and daughter grief seems to get in the way of their relationship, and by the time our story starts, there is plenty of emotional distance between them. One night, teenage Margot doesn't return from an evening, supposedly studying with her friends. David reports her missing, and the police, in the form of Detective Deborah Messing, tells him to stay at home and let them do the legwork, which means that our hero only has Google, his daughter's laptop, which he manages to crack the password to, and then her online history, which provides far more clues than traditional police work. Mr Kim, is everything OK? <laughs> Everything is great. Margot and I are... She had cash in her car. You felt bad about everything. She was my best friend. Oh, my God. She told me she ran away! I didn't know her. I didn't know my daughter. 
I'm not sure what legs this new style of film is going to have, but Searching stands up as a quality modern thriller, mainly because of the sheer relatability of Cho as the father. It's a terrific performance, and I'd love to see him get more leading roles. Searching is rated M for drug references and has been in cinemas for a couple of weeks now, just long enough to start disappearing from smaller locations. If you wait too much longer, you might just miss out. I've always wanted to visit Japan, and next week I finally get to do just that on a two-week family holiday in Tokyo, Kyoto and Osaka. As we've been preparing for that trip, I realise that my overwhelming impressions of the country are from movies. That shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, I suppose, as I do watch a lot of films, but the cinema of Japan is so distinctive that it can't help but leave a deep impression. The samurai epics of Kurosawa, to the heartfelt modern slices of life from the great Hirokazu Koraeda, the magical animation of Miyazaki, and the bloodthirsty Yakuza thrillers of Takeshi Kitano. You could spend a year watching only films from Japan and have a simply marvellous time. In fact, that's not a million miles away from what we've been doing at our house. And I thoroughly recommend you dig around the Japanese section of wherever it is you get your home video entertainment these days. There's a dream sequence in the latest great piece of Japanese animation, Mirai, which is set in the Tokyo railway station, and it's so fantastic that I'm worried that I'll only be disappointed by the real thing. Mirai is another of our films this week about children and parents. Four-year-old Kun is the apple of his family's eye until mum and dad come home with new sister Mirai. Kun takes this quite hard, as children that age often do. What's so lovely about Mirai is that it is so sensitively told from the little boy's perspective, even framed at his eye level and vividly entering his imagination when he's at play, that his bad behaviour is completely understandable. This might be the best representation of what it's like to be a child that age that I've seen on screen. Of course, being Japanese animation, we have to have a bit of fantasy to spice the story up. Kun discovers that his little courtyard garden, and by the way, the Tokyo architecture and streetscapes are beautifully observed in Mirai. His garden is magical, and it allows him to meet the grown-up Mirai, who teaches him what it means to have a little sister. Mirai isn't a Ghibli film, it comes from the Chizu studio, but it's no lesser a product for that. Director Mamoru Hosoda does this childhood stuff especially well. The Girl Who Leapt Through Time and Summer Wars should be on your list too. Mirai is rated PG, and as you might have gathered from the clip, it's in Japanese with English subtitles. And that's our program for this week. We'll play ourselves out with a track featured among many other 80s British pop hits on the soundtrack of Johnny English Strikes Again. This is, of course, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Two Tribes, and I'm playing it now mainly because we don't hear it as often as perhaps we think we do. I'm Dan Slevin, and you can find me on Twitter as at Dan Slevin, that's all one word, and there's more of me at rnz.co.nz forward slash widescreen. Next week, this chair will be filled by not one but two guest reviewers, which even by parsimonious RNZ standards probably means we should get another chair. 
For the remainder of Simon's holiday at the movies will be presented by the husband and wife team behind the Married to the Movies podcast, Sarah and Doug Dilliman. They're great friends of mine and very fine reviewers of cinema, so I hope you'll make them feel very welcome. They'll be here at the same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.